0: Let's go then and petition heaven and ask heaven's blessing on our consideration of the word together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our Savior, we come to the Father through your mediation. Our hearts are cold, warm them with your selfless love. Our hearts are sinful, cleanse them with your precious blood. Our hearts are weak, strengthen them with your joyous spirit. Our hearts are empty, fill them with your divine presence. Heavenly Father, our hearts are yours. Possess them always and only for yourself. Spirit of God, open our hearts and minds to hear your voice in the Word. And try, God, empower us to believe, obey, and rest in all you teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark, to the book of Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering in our morning services a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 3, and we want to consider the first six verses together. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke, Mark chapter 3, and we'll read the first six verses together. So Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, The opening verses of this chapter really bring to an end the series of conflict narratives we've been considering in this first part of the book of Mark. Uh, Conflict narratives that show the conflict between Jesus and the kingdom he comes to proclaim and the kingdom he comes to bring and the tradition of the religious leaders the threat that Jesus is to their traditional worship. And what began with sort of private questioning has now arisen to the point and escalated to the point where they're now seeking a way to accuse Him and finally seeking to destroy Him. One of the functions that this, this text has in a sense is to escalate the conflict clearly to bring it to a head, to draw clearly the battle lines between Jesus and his mission in the world and the mission of his opponents to silence and destroy him. Uh, That's what this sort of conflict narrative section has all been about, and it reaches its high point here once again over the issue of the Sabbath. And just as the previous passage dealt with a controversy over the Sabbath, so too here we'll see a controversy, a conflict over the Sabbath. Uh, The last controversy ended with that glorious declaration that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And here we'll see Jesus demonstrate that he is the Lord of the Sabbath uh, by a question that silences his critics. And so how does Mark tell us this story? of Jesus demonstrating that he is the Lord of the Sabbath? Well, he tells it through this renewed conflict, through restored glory, and through revealed hearts. That's how we want to think about this passage together. Renewed conflict, restored glory, and revealed hearts. There is a renewed conflict here over the Sabbath. As Jesus enters now into the synagogue... Now, we don't know how this passage relates to this former conflict. We know that Mark has arranged these stories. Uh, so that they follow this kind of order of escalating conflict. So we don't know if this was the same Sabbath day that he and his disciples passed through fields picking grain, whether they were on their way to the synagogue. We're not told exactly which synagogue this is. It's likely that he's still in Galilee, and this is the synagogue in Capernaum that we've seen him enter before, but we're really not sure about any of those details. Again, Mark gives us the details he wants us to focus on, Um, as he tells the story. And what does he say? That as Jesus entered the synagogue, there was a man there with a withered hand, and that the enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, are watching Jesus to see whether he will heal this man with a withered hand. Um, They are looking for a reason to accuse him. It shows that this conflict has now escalated from them just asking him questions, or asking his disciples questions about his conduct, to now saying, we need to find a reason to accuse him. And that language carries something of a a legal context or a court context. They're looking for a way to bring a formal charge against him, a charge that can be adjudicated against him. And they come to the synagogue, and they see this poor man with a withered hand, and they say, here now is the perfect opportunity. Here is the perfect opportunity to accuse Jesus. If he comes and heals this man with a withered hand, we've got him. Um, Now, it might seem a very strange thing to us that this is the way they think. Uh, We might read this passage and ask the question, Why do they think this is going to be the gotcha moment? What is going on in their minds that they think if Jesus heals a man with a withered hand, this will somehow be a great case against him? Um, Right? We might look at that and say, this doesn't sound like a great case. What are you going to go do? Tell somebody healed him? What's, What's the problem here? Well, the problem was with their interpretation of the law. Uh, the law was very clear in the rabbinic interpretation of what work was and was not allowed on the Sabbath day. And their regulations for work included medicine and healing. Um, You wouldn't think it's just anyone who can come in and heal, uh, but this falls under the general category of any kind of medical or therapeutic treatment. The rabbis would have said there's six days a week to do that. The seventh day of the week is not a day for that. Now, they were not entirely unsympathetic. They said, you know, if it's a matter of life and death, you can go seek medicine, you can go seek therapy, but you'll be surprised to hear that they had a whole list of rules on what constituted a life and death situation, um, and even rules about how much aid you can render to someone in a life and death situation before you render too much and end up violating the Sabbath day. So they all kinds of rules and regulations for medicine and healing and what could be done on the Sabbath. Um, and you can see something of the logic. Looking out, I don't see you totally persuaded of this tradition. Um, but you can see something of their logic. They would say, God has given us six days to do our own thing. The seventh day is for him. And so we don't need to do things on the Sabbath day that we can do other days of the week. And if it's not a life threatening situation, you can handle that other days of the week. You see how there's a kind of, a kind of logic to it. And so they look at the man with the withered hand and they say, you know, he doesn't need to be healed today. That withered hand isn't going to kill him before sunset, that's something that will wait. That's something that doesn't need to be done now. But we know what kind of person Jesus is. He won't wait. He'll go ahead and heal him. And when he does, we've got him. A withered hand is not a life and death situation. And so they think this will be the perfect opportunity to lie in the weeds and wait for Jesus to act. And then they can spring on him. But what do we see as they try to renew this conflict with Jesus over the Sabbath? As they seek to lie back and wait to spring this trap on him, he actually renews the conflict with them first. Notice how Jesus turns the tables on them. Uh, They're lying in wait, thinking they've got this perfect plan about how to entrap him. But Jesus brings the conflict right out into the open. He knows exactly what they're thinking. He knows what the rabbinic tradition says. It said, literally, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Jesus knows exactly how they're thinking. But he doesn't allow this to take place in secret. He doesn't allow them to lie in the weeds and wait to spring their trap. He calls the whole thing out in public. That's the force of what he does in verses three and four. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good and or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? He brings the man out in front of the congregation. Um, it, It comes out a little more clearly in the NIV's translation when Jesus says to him, Stand up in front of everyone. Sort of like if I said to one of you, come up here for a minute. You can relax, I'm not going to do that to anyone. Um, But if I said, come up here, that would bring that person front and center, right? It would bring that person into the gaze of the whole congregation. That's what Jesus does with the man with the withered hand. He takes him out of just the Pharisees' gaze of watching him. Um, But he brings him into the gaze of the whole congregation. He's turned the tables on them completely. They said, we'll lay back, we'll we'll wait for him to act, and then we'll spring the trap. We'll come and we'll accuse him. But what does Jesus do? He calls the whole thing out in public and puts them on the defensive. You are the great experts of the law. What is the right thing to do with this man? Is it lawful to do good for him? Is it lawful to save life for him? You see what that does in this this conflict? It takes it out of the realm about just opining about the law. Um, We can sometimes do that, right? Sit down and talk about things in sort of the abstract. But that man with the withered hand makes everything very real to think about the difficulties that he has to meet life with with this handicap with this disability it's all it's all well and good for someone else to say he won't die from this this isn't life and death for him he can wait till sunset for someone to help him but when you pull him up and when you say does he need help is it good to help him Is that lawful for you? Do you think God would allow him to be helped on this day? You see how it puts them entirely on the defensive. And the question he asks is intended to confound their tradition and to restore the Sabbath to its glory. That's what Jesus does through this question. This question that is so fundamental On the Sabbath. What is it intended to do? Jesus intends by it to restore the glory of the Sabbath from the cloud that has covered it as it's been loaded onto with all of this tradition, all of these traditions of men that have nothing to do with the commandment of God. And it's this fundamental question that Jesus uses to begin to restore the glory of the Sabbath before the congregation and in the face of these so-called religious experts. And Jesus does it by asking a question that appeals to the law's own characterization of itself. The question appeals to how the Old Testament talked about the law. When the whole covenant law was set before Israel in Deuteronomy, what did Moses say about it in Deuteronomy 30? I'll tell you if you don't know, remember off the top of your head. Um, What did did Moses say after he'd set forth all of the covenant before Israel? How did he describe that covenant? In Deuteronomy 30.15 he said, See, I have set before you today life and good. Death and evil. And a few verses later, he said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days. The Lord is our life. The Lord's law is a law of life. The Lord is good. The Lord's law is a law of good. And that's what Jesus does to the Pharisees. He sets before them Scripture's own definition of the law and says, Is law-keeping about good and life or isn't it? Was Moses right when he said the law was about good and life, or wasn't he? And doesn't that include the Sabbath? Isn't the Sabbath about good and life as God describes it? Or is it set to be a curse? Is it set to be a day for evil? You see how he completely calls them out by this question. I think they would have easily heard what he's doing. And that's why it leaves them without an ability to answer. They can't answer the question. Why? Because the Pharisees were selling their whole notion of what they were teaching as a movement of the common people. We are for the people. That's our whole goal in doing these things. But here you have Jesus before the common people calling out one of the common people and saying, is this day for his good or not? Is the Lord concerned with doing good for him on this day or not? You see why they can't say no. It would be unpopular. What they really want to say is, no, it's not permitted to do good to him on the Sabbath. There are six days to do good for him. That's what they want to say, but they can't say it in front of the congregation because it's unpopular. And they certainly can't say the Sabbath is a day for evil or for killing because everybody knows that's not true. You see, he puts this question to them in such a way that they can't answer it. They should be able to answer it, but they can't. And that really brings the conflict to a head. This is really the high point of the conflict narratives when finally the questions end up in the critics being silenced. They've come time and time again with their questions, with their accusations, with their innuendos, and now Jesus has asked a fundamental question to which they have no response. There's something glorious in this that we shouldn't pass over, right? We want to get to the healing, but this really is the high point. The accusers are silenced. The Lord of the Sabbath has proven he knows more about the Sabbath day than they do. And he's left these so-called experts speechless before his interpretation of the law. He's proven that he is no mere interpreter, as they are. He is the lawgiver. And he understands what is fundamental to the law he's given. It is for good. It is for life. And there's no way that you can turn the law against life and goodness as God describes it. You cannot turn any law to that purpose. You cannot turn the fourth commandment to that purpose. And Jesus not only speaks this question that silences them and shows his authority, he then demonstrates his authority by power. You know what I intend to do, he essentially says to them. Tell me it's wrong. That's essentially what he's revealing as Lord of the Sabbath. I know your heart. Tell me what I'm about to do is wrong. Go ahead and tell me. And they have no answer. And so what does he do? He then turns to the man and says, stretch forth your hand. And his hand is restored. This is not just a demonstration of power and authority. It's a demonstration of Jesus saying, I know exactly where the conflict lies and I'm not afraid of you. I haven't come here to do your will. I've come to do the will of the Father who sent me. And what is the Father's will? For good. To save life. To bring restoration. Um, The Pharisees were looking to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath day. That's a different word that Mark uses for what Jesus does for the man's hand. When he tells him to stretch out his hand, we're not told the hand was healed, we're told the hand was restored. And it's a simple linguistic thing. We don't want to make too much of it. But at the same time, isn't that the work that Jesus has come to do? To work restoration. And what he's essentially saying is, there's no better day to work restoration than this day that speaks of restoration. What was this day given for? To remind mankind, even in perfection, that there was a rest that awaited. And if that that was important, even in the perfection of creation, as we talked about last time, how much more important is in this fallen world, where sin has ravaged so many people in so many ways like the man with the withered hand. Right? It's sad that the Pharisees looked at him and said, Well, that's not a life and death thing. He'll, he'll be fine till sunset. Heal him then. Yeah, withered hand with someone else is not life and death to you. It's life and death to him. It's a big deal to him. And it's a big deal to God. Because what does that withered hand represent? It represents what sin has done to what God made good. That sin is a ruining force. Exerts a ruining influence on this world. And Jesus has come to declare as Lord of the Sabbath, I'm here to put an end to that. The time for that is over. The time for restoration is fulfilled. The time of this thing, the kingdom of the, of the darkness, is over. The kingdom of God is now at hand. And that's a kingdom against which no sin or corruption can remain unchanged and unrestored. That's what Jesus has come to do. To restore the glory of the Sabbath. And what better day on this day that spoke of restoration. Than to restore the one who was suffering. Jesus could not have said to him. Come back after sunset. Because the time was now. The time was now to do these things. Jesus silences his critics, he shows the Sabbath's true purpose in what he says and what he does. And he sets before all who hear him what God sets before us in the law choose life, choose what's good. That's why we shouldn't make the Sabbath about rules and regulations. I talked to a number of you after last time's ser- sermon on the Sabbath, and they said, I saw Sabbath in the bulletin, I thought, okay, here we're going to get it right between the eyes. So I kind of leaned into that with the title of my sermon for this week. Um, I thought maybe you'd see what is permitted on the Sabbath and think, "Well, now we're going to get it right between the eyes." He couldn't let us go two Sundays without giving it to us. Um, but what is what is Jesus teaching them here? That's not how the Sabbath is to be thought of. Not what it's not for. That's not where we major in for the Sabbath. We major in what it's for. That's what Jesus has come to do: restore the glory of the good and the life that god is promoting by the sabbath what does he give us the sabbath for it's for holy rest so we can have a day where we can cease from our ordinary labors it's for holy remembrance that we can come together and remember the mighty deeds of the lord remember what he's done in creation remember what he's done in redemption through the cross of his son How undeserving sinners have been saved solely by the grace of a loving God. So we can remember those things. And so we can engage in holy rejoicing over those things. That wherever the disconsolate languish, they can come to the mercy seat and find healing. To know there is no sin or sorrow that heaven can't heal. To rejoice in the healing that comes and to go forth being refreshed. You see how what the Pharisees did robbed all of that. You can't rest if it's all about regulation and restriction. You're always on edge. There's no time to remember what God has done. It's certainly not going to be a day for rejoicing if you're loaded down with a lot of burdens. And far from being refreshed, you're going to be exhausted. And Jesus comes to restore the Sabbath to that glory to say the law still applies. He's not come to abolish the fourth commandment. He's come to dust it off, to remove the grime that's gathered over that gem, to shine it up and to say, look at the glory. That's what he's come to do for this day. He doesn't come to say this is a day for doing whatever we see fit. He's saying, remember why God has given you this day. Because he wants you to rest. He wants you to gather and remember and rejoice because the joy of the Lord is your strength. He wants you to go forth and be refreshed as you go into the world. Because he knows, Jesus knows personally just how draining this world can be how much we need our gaze lifted up to heaven to be reminded of the glory that awaits the people of God. That's what this day is for. And that when we use it the way God has called us to use it, that we can be assured of His blessing. It's a day for weekly restoration. It's a day for weekly restoration that speaks of that eternal restoration that's coming. A day in which we will rest from everything, a day where we will do nothing but remember what God has done and rejoice in what He's doing and experience an eternal refreshing, the likes of which we can only partly understand in this life. There's an eternal Sabbath coming. There's an eternal rest that's prepared for the people of God. That's why we want to make use of this day the right way for all of those purposes God has given to us, so that we might find refreshment from our God. But this story also reveals something to us about the hearts of the people involved. Um, we see that in what, in how Jesus reacts to the Pharisee's silence. We've sort of moved over the, his reaction to the healing, but let's return to what that reveals about the hearts. When God comes and sends his son to restore the glory of the Sabbath. How do people react? Look at the hearts of the Pharisees. We see their hardness of heart. I think Mark means for us, when he uses that phrase, to conjure up images of Israel in the wilderness. Israel in the wilderness, when they were so hard-hearted, when they showed what this word means, a stubborn unwillingness to learn. That's what these teachers of the law are showing. They might be teachers, but they're no students. They can't learn. Right? They they know he heals. They believe he heals. And they're going to use his healing power to try to conspire against him. That shows the hardness of their hearts. That when he comes and confounds them with what the Bible says about the truth that they are against, they won't learn from it. They won't have an answer for it, but they won't follow him. That's a hardness of heart. And it's shown in by what they go out and do. Right? They couldn't have said the Sabbath is for doing harm, for killing. But what do they immediately go out and do in verse 6? They go out and plot his death. Went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him I thought the Sabbath wasn't for killing I thought the Sabbath wasn't for harming won't your plots to destroy him wait till sunset it shows the hardness of their hearts that they go out immediately and plot with people they disagree with about everything the Herodians were the Jerusalem elite they were connected to the powers that be they were the temple authorities, they were the, the people of high places of stature who rub shoulders with the wealthy and the important. They were everything that the Pharisees didn't represent. Uh, the, the Herodians were pro-Herod, pro-Sadducee, the religious elite. The Pharisees were anti-Sadducee, anti-Herod, and supposed to be a movement of the common people. There was nothing that brought them together except their hostility to Jesus except the recognition that here is a reformer who will compromise our tradition and ultimately cost us our positions and our power. That's how hard-hearted they are. We should pray that God would deliver us from that kind of hard-heartedness. But it's not just their hearts that's revealed in this passage. It's Christ's heart that's revealed. The heart of the Lord of the Sabbath is revealed in this passage. First towards the needy, as he reaches out to this man with a withered hand, knowing what this is going to set off, the chain of events that this is going to set off. It doesn't matter that it's not a life or death situation for him. Jesus heals him, and in healing him, he makes it a a life and death situation for himself. But in that, it shows us something the the heart of the Lord, Uh, his willingness to reach out to the suffering and the afflicted to heal and to restore regardless of what it will cost him. It shows something of his heart towards the needy. But it shows us also his heart even towards his enemies. When the the teachers of the law can't answer his question about the law, how does he react? He's angry. He looks around at them in anger, Mark tells us. I like to think there's not one of them that could have met his gaze. Um, as the, the eyes of the Lord of the Sabbath look at them in their hardness. He looks at them with anger, but what also does Mark tell us? He looks at, him, at them with grief. With deep grief. Mark really says he's deeply grieved even in the midst of his anger. I think that's something that, as we close our consideration of this passage, we ought to keep before our eyes. The heart of Christ is a certain way towards the needy, but his heart is a certain way even towards the enemy. I think probably we have an easier time following Christ when it regards the needy and the afflicted. I think we have a tougher time following it with regard to the enemies. That he can be holy and righteous in his anger and not sin. That's very hard for us. It's easy for us to be angry with God's enemies. Um, Especially easy in our day where so much is designed to stir up our outrage. Um, There there are news media outlets that work 24-7 to stir up outrage. Um, I think it used to be if it bleeds, it leads. Now it's if it makes our base angry, we'll lead with it. It doesn't matter what perspective it is. Everyone's just trying to make everyone angry. I sometimes turn on the news now and just say, what should I be outraged about today? Um, It's easy for us to be angry. And we know from Jesus there's a way to be angry and not sin, but it's so hard for us to find that point. To be righteous in our anger without tipping over into unrighteousness. And maybe what Jesus does here gives us something of the key to how we remain Christ-like in our anger without tipping over into sin. By making sure that there's never an absence of grief for us over the enemies of God. Maybe Jesus is able to maintain the righteousness of his anger because it's also combined with a deep grief over what he sees. And who is he grieving for? He's grieving for the Pharisees. He's grieving for them. He's hurt by what it means for them. As one person put it, in their concern for legal detail, they had forgotten the mercy and grace shown to God by man when he gave him the Sabbath. Jesus showed deep grief for men who could no longer rejoice in the tokens of God's goodness to His creatures. He's grieved for them. Maybe that shows us the Christ-like way towards our enemies, the enemies of God. that we should be sure that in our anger, we can always find that grief for those who do not know the Lord. That we would be deeply grieved that they don't know him. They don't know the joy of him. We passed so many people on our way here that were going somewhere else, not just in terms of where they were headed in their destination today, but might be headed somewhere else spiritually. I hope there's room in our hearts to grieve for them in the midst of our anger have that same heart for the lost that the Lord of the Sabbath has for them. Maybe that will help us in our anger not to sin. But this is the glory of what God has revealed to us. That the Lord of the Sabbath has come to save sinners. And when we recognize how far short we fall in our own hearts there is a day coming when our hearts will be restored. When our hearts will be like the heart of the Lord of the Sabbath. That day's coming when he comes soon in glory. Let's sure we make this day, that day of restoration for our lives on a weekly basis. And so doing anticipate that day of rest that's coming eternally for all of God's people. Coming with our Lord who is surely coming soon. May he come quickly, the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen.